Hi, and welcome to the first episode of the Emroid Digest podcast. I'm your host, Chuma Obineme. I am a PGY5 GI fellow at Emory University, and my co-host is Dr. Jason Brown. He leads the GI team over at Greater Memorial Hospital, also at Emory University. Jason, say hello for a bit. Hey team, where you at? Nice, nice. So on this show, we will interview authors of major guidelines within the field of gastroenterology to better understand what's in these guidelines, how and why were they written, and where the field of GI is going. Uh, We hope this podcast will be purely educational and not to be used for medical advice. Actually, uh, Jason, can you give our listeners a quick disclaimer? Yeah. So, um, so medicine is a lifelong learning process, and this podcast is part of that process for us. While every effort is taken to ensure the accuracy of the material presented, we realize that medicine is constantly changing, not to mention that art comes along with the science. In recorded conversations such as this, we may make a mistake or get something wrong. We welcome comments, suggestions, or corrections of errors. This material is presented for informational purposes only. This podcast is not intended to be, nor should it be understood or construed to be professional or medical advice. All right. And with that, let's get to the show. Hi, and welcome to the Emeroid Digest podcast. We are so happy to have our first guest on the show, Dr. Asma Shukat. She is here to discuss the ACG guidelines on colorectal cancer screening. She is a professor of medicine and director of GI outcomes research at NYU. Her area of research is colon cancer prevention, screening, and long-term outcomes. Of note, she also did her GI fellowship at nowhere else but Emory University. Um, Welcome to the show. We're really happy to have you. Thank you so much for the kind introduction. I'm so excited to be here. Excellent. Um, So I kind of just want to start by... Uh, I guess you just giving us a, a one-liner about about you that may not be able to be found in your CV or resume. Yeah, I am a gastroenterologist and a clinical researcher with epidemiology and randomized control trial at at uh, at the core passion, and I like combining those for, and thinking about asking things that we believe are dogma but challenging them and saying, what is the evidence behind them and how can we do better? Hmm. Excellent. Excellent. Um, so I guess I'm, I'm curious before we get to guidelines and get into the meat of this paper. Um, you know, I, I always ask people, I guess on a different podcast, sort of how COVID changed them. Um, so are there any, uh, I guess, did you emerge, you know, or while COVID was going on, did you find yourself, getting interested in new hobbies or doing anything sort of out of the ordinary for you? Oh, yeah, absolutely. COVID was a good time for everybody to reflect and develop newer talents or interests. So I actually took up long distance running, mainly by default, as you know, gyms were closed and there was a lot of stress that you needed some kind of avenue to vent. Absolutely. So I just decided to take on long distance running and it's um, it's been fascinating and that everything you hear about the endorphin rush is actually true so Hmm. once you start unfortunately then you kind of get 
uh, hooked to it and it's uh, you know it's it's a spiral then you want to do it every day that's yeah. really cool I have, to, I have to say i took up running um but my long distance is like three miles that's all <laughs> that's all i have in me i'm impressed <laughs> nice nice um so one random question that i have is um i guess it starts with one do you listen to music in the endoscopy suite or it's kind of like, I feel like people are on one side or the other of this camp. I actually let the the staff, the nurses and the techs in my room decide wow. because I figure they need to be happy in the room also. Yeah. And then my life is uh, easier that way. <laughs> Absolutely. But secretly, I do enjoy when they play music. <laughs> and they were surprised that I actually like bands like Guns N' Roses and... Okay. Okay. So that's yeah. awesome. So now when I'm in the room, they they chuckle a little bit and then they they play you know some some very stimulating music. <laughs> excellent, excellent. Well, that's good. Giving the power back to the staff. Yeah, um, so, that's the voice of wisdom there. Right. Exactly. Um, so okay, now we've got I guess a little bit about you. I feel like we can we should probably jump to some of these guidelines. Mm -hmm. um, so Jason, do you want to take away some of this? Yeah. So, so one of the goals of this show is to applaud the, the author's educational efforts and, and sort of celebrate their dedication to medical education, both for trainees and for our colleagues. Um, this takes an incredible amount of work. We know that, and we want to hold that up as something to be emulated and, and congratulated. And not only just to write the paper, but to put yourself in the position to be able to to even work with a group to write a paper like this. Um, so we want to celebrate that commitment you made to your professional journey. And we want to inspire, that's part of this, is inspire some of our listeners who are trainees and junior faculty to, to try and follow in those footsteps as well. So so flowing from that, what can you tell us a little bit about your, your story from moving from a GI fellow to where you are now? What was that course of sonorum like for you um, because our listeners right now are, are sweating out their first few months of fellowship and, and looking up at, at, at people who are doing these incredible things and they don't, that path is not clear to them. Yeah, that's an excellent uh, observation, Jason. And I totally agree with you. I actually wanted to be a role model and pave a path to everybody that is in training where it seems endless and there's no and at sight, and then you look at all these big names and you wonder how they get where they get. Well, I'm here to tell you that that path is is not you know, completely foreign and it is completely achievable if you're interested in it. And you don't have to be interested in it, uh, but if you truly are, then don't let anything stop you. And I'm a prime example of uh, all the barriers to overcome I had no mentorship. I am an immigrant. I, um, you know, am, uh, culturally uh, wasn't uh, um, as adept as uh, other people. But you just knock on doors and look for opportunities. And there's more dead ends than pathways. But you just stay true to what you really want to do. And remember your why. Why is it that you're interested in this? For me, it was the passion of uh, learning answers and making guidelines or creating evidence that helps others take care of patients. 
so that it's grounded in some scientific evidence more so than expert opinion. Having said that, you know, expert opinion also has its place and we have, as you know, very little evidence for most things. So I wanted to kind of combine the two and um, in, in doing so, show everybody that if I can do it, so can you. That's really powerful and personal. And I appreciate your sharing that with us. Um, I had liked what you said in your introduction about challenging dogmas and and thinking about things that we do because people said to do them. And, and that's where the evidence-based piece comes in and, and the guideline writing. Um, what would sort of the, the core advice be that you might give to, to trainees or junior faculty who, who want to get involved with those national committees, who may not have that mentorship or those connections, either personally or from their home institutions, who want to get on work groups that, that help write guidelines like these? Reach out. Don't be shy. Ask a lot of questions, knock on a lot of doors, ask for opportunities. You know, when I started, we didn't have as much social media or say email contacts. So it mainly relied on meeting people at, you know, actual meetings and then going up to them, which was very intimidating. Well, some of those barriers have been taken down. If you write an email, um, I'm very sure me and most of my colleagues will respond. And then now we're able to collaborate across institutions. Uh, Twitter is a great example of a social media platform that we can reach out to each other from. Actually, trainees have reached out to me and it's resulted in some successful collaboration. That's really great. That hopefully is the seed for them to then, you know, start uh, their yeah. career. And don't be afraid of failure. Yes, not everything will go uh, as you planned or lead to a successful project. But that's okay. That's truly part of the game. And so persistence and perseverance and just continue to reach out. I appreciate you saying that because that's, that's hard for a lot of type A folks who are used to academic success and success in other venues in life. Um, you will reach a point, whether it's getting into medical school or residency or fellowship or beyond, where you will start to hear no's or you will start to get your equivalent of an F. And, uh, and it's important to hear that from somebody who has been through that and come out on the other side. So I appreciate your sharing that with us. Um, Chuma, other questions that you have in this vein? I mean, I personally, I'm, I'm really excited about these guidelines. <clears throat> so I, I, I feel like I feel like it's time. We have to jump into these. Um, but before we do, I guess my thing is, you know, it's funny, you know, coming into fellowship, um, everyone was always like, how do you read an original article? You know, how, where do you start with an original article? Um, but when you come into fellowship, you realize that a lot of what you're reading are guidelines. Um, and I don't really feel like in residency, anybody really told me how to approach a guideline effectively. Um, so I guess before we jump into these specific guidelines, do you have any tips for how to approach the reading of guidelines and you know, how, how you go about doing it? Yes, absolutely. Having read many and now been part of many, uh, the first and most important thing is what was the question or questions that they uh, aim to answer? And that should be spelled out very, very clearly and as specific as possible so that you understand exactly who these pertain to. And the question is in that PCOTS format. We hear that a lot, but it needs to be a specific patient population, some intervention, what are we comparing it to, what is the outcome that's being studied, uh, the timing of it, the setting of it, and then what is the, the cultural and the healthcare context, right? We would do things a little differently 
in say the Grady's as opposed to Emory uh, in a FQHC versus uh, the university hospital at a VA versus in the community. So the, the, the context or the healthcare system is also very important. And that's how you frame uh, or start to think about who does this pertain to? Because eventually you want to apply it to your patients. And your first question and then your last question should always be, how does this apply to my patient population and my clinical practice? So start with the specific study question. And that is per perhaps the most important area. The second most important area is their methods. How did they come up with what you're about to read? Essentially what they're about to tell you, how did they come to that? Was it an expert opinion? Was it evidence-based? And then there's different grades of evidence-based, right? There's kind of just a narrative review. There's a selective review. There's a very comprehensive or a systematic review and sometimes even synthesis of data in the process. And that kind of tells you how much weight you should put into it. Again, I'm, I take expert opinion with a grain of salt because, you know, again, there's areas where expert opinion has its role, but if there's a lot of good evidence, then I think we should absolutely consider the evidence along with that opinion being weighed in. So that's the second thing to look at is the methods. How did they come to the conclusions that they came to? And then the third thing, obviously, is the summary of their recommendations. Every guideline now does a really good job of distilling them and breaking them down into kind of, you know, bullets or really small digestible points. You'll see them as a table one or summary points or best, best practice advice. So then those would be kind of the, the high level um, uh, output of the paper itself. Yeah, yeah. You know, I, I wish we could get to every single recommendation in these guidelines, but there are a ton. I guess, you know, before we jump into the specifics of it, um, you know, this this uh, these guidelines came out in March of 2021. Why did you guys feel like, I guess, around that time or that was a meaningful time to put out these guidelines or what was what sort of what was the thrust for that? Yes. So there were a few things going on. One was there was accumulating evidence that we are detecting colon cancers earlier and earlier. So several papers using SEER data showing that there's a relative increase of anywhere between 12 to 18% in the incidence of colorectal cancer among individuals younger than the age 50. And so while we are doing a great job screening 50 and older, uh, where the incidence curves are downtrending as well as the mortality curves, yet there's this rising incidence. So that needed to be looked at closely and figure out what we're going to do and how much do we know about that population or who's truly at risk in that population. And also framing that risk in terms of absolute numbers. And that's another thing I recommend the audience to think about is, you know, separating relative risks. We relative risks can be inflated. Something can go up 50%. But the absolute risk becomes really important if it goes from one in 100,000 to two in 100,000 in a population. That's a 50% relative increase. Mm. However, you know, in terms of absolute numbers, that's still extremely rare. Great point. So yes. looking at the actual, you know, absolute uh, increase or what exactly are we dealing with? 
So th that was some of the accumulating data that we wanted to look at. Second, there's uh, been more evidence on non-invasive CRC screening strategies in the literature recently. So we wanted to review that and see uh, what the updates are in that arena. And third, because of the COVID pandemic, as you know, screening came to a screeching halt mm. and we weren't doing any elective uh, colonoscopies and screening programs in general were put on a hold. So we wanted to also think more uh, globally and at the population level and say, what are we doing for the individuals that truly are not getting screened as we think about resuming screening and how that's led to you know, increased disparities in the populations that were already underserved, underscreened, mm -hmm. and now they have a disproportionate burden of being left behind. So mm -hmm. how do we address those gaps? And are there ways of organized thinking that we could propose for healthcare systems, practices to frame their screening programs in? Hmm. That's excellent. Um... I feel like, uh, you know, one of the, I think that's such a great point about, I guess, the changes in epidemiology that we're seeing around colorectal cancer. Um, I guess a question, I, do we know why exactly younger individuals are developing cancer at a higher rate than previously? That is a million dollar question. <laughs> and uh, it truly is. NIH has mm -hmm. pumped no less than several million dollars into that question. It's one <laughs> Literally. of provocative questions that uh, is is being, uh, you know, highly sought after to try to address. And I must say the research community has responded and people are approaching that question from different angles. What evidence do we have from the epidemiology standpoint? What do we have from the molecular standpoint, genetic standpoint, and um, environmental uh, standpoint? So we don't have all the pieces yet but the risk seems to be what most of the data suggests is it's uh, in white uh, in caucasian men and the risk factors seem to be uh, sed sedentary lifestyle obesity and it kind of dovetails uh, with the obesity epidemic in the u.s mm -hmm. there are associations with childhood obesity childhood diabetes, glucose intolerance, and metabolic syndrome being associated. And um, um, so that's where we truly think some of the attenuated risk comes from. Right. Does um, all day, five day a week endoscopy count as sedentary or what are we dealing with here? Just are asking for a friend. Doing them? Because I, <laughs> I trained with Stan Reapy. He retired, but... He was perhaps one of the master endoscopists, and uh, he used to sit and do his uh, colonoscopies, but he was very yep. fit otherwise. Stan <laughs> still comes and attends our, our fellows clinic on Tuesday afternoon. Uh, oh, that's great. Yeah. So, yeah. Anyways, so most of us are standing, so that's actually that's actually good. Okay, We're really good. worried right. about during particularly the pandemic, how everybody was working from home, sitting yeah. on chairs or not yeah. getting enough activity or exercise. And truly, there weren't opportunities. You know, you, you couldn't walk five miles in Disneyland because you just didn't get to go anywhere. Absolutely. Um, yeah. So it's truly the sedentary lifestyle, uh, the TV dinners and, you know, how our childhood uh, activities have truly changed. Yeah. 
Yeah. What is, so I guess before we get into some of these non-invasive tests, um, I find, I guess it was interesting to me that, you know, one of the strong recommendations was, you know, FOBT testing every year and uh, colon cancer um, screening every 10 years. There was a strong recommendation, but low quality of evidence is, I guess that was kind of surprising to me. I feel like it's such the, the cornerstone of colorectal cancer screening yet, you know, we don't have actually a lot of evidence behind it. I don't know. Can you, can you speak to that? Absolutely. Um, so interestingly, the evidence for uh, fecal testing comes from the old school fecal occult blood test. And that test was developed actually first in 1875 and then truly mm -hmm. tried in clinical practice in 1975. And if you're old enough, you'll remember it looked like these cards that you carried around in your pocket with a developer, you'd smear stool and uh, put a developer on and it turned blue. Um, so that's the original test. It wasn't very uh, uh, sensitive, but it was specific. And that old school test was what was truly studied in clinical trials, including the one in the US, the Minnesota Fecal Occult Blood Trial, and also uh, three in Europe. And that test itself has truly the great evidence behind it. However, over time, as we were understanding that that test really works, we evolved the stool test into the modern day FIT, the fecal immunochemical test, which is, as you know, much more specific to mm. hemoglobin, uh, there's no food or dietary restrictions. It's uh, a one sample. It's much easier to use and administer. And it has a higher sensitivity than the old uh, generation FOBT. However, we just adopted FIT and ran with it. We did not. We decided it was similar enough to FOBT that we really didn't need to do a 30-year trial with the FIT. So we just assume that a stool test, even though the original was the FOBT and it's now FIT, is um, works just as well as the fecal occult blood test. But we actually don't have long-term data on FIT and hence the low quality of evidence. Right, right. Now, um, maybe this is a semantic thing, but uh, when I guess in the paper it mentions multi-target stool DNA testing, and I guess you're mentioning FIT, are those, I guess, one and the same, or I guess are there like differences between those? Yeah, two? no, they're very different. So then FIT has been around for about 20, 30 years. And there's, even though it doesn't have uh, a long-term study, like a randomized control trial with the outcome of colon cancer incidence or mortality. However, there's plenty of um, other observational and yeah, population-based case control studies that suggest that it has, you know, high sensitivity and specificity and uh, great programmatic screening, right? Because it's not a one-time test. It's it's yeah. the repeat testing that truly catches things. Mm -hmm. um, however, we don't have that level of evidence for the multi-target stool DNA test, which as you know, has the fit component, but it also has a whole stool collection for uh, DNA uh, mutation and methylation markers. So it's more sensitive than the fit and that's not a surprise, right? If it has a fit, it can't be any less sensitive than the fit. Right. So it's more sensitive than the fit, but it's less specific. So that leads to more false positives. And with false positives, as we know, there's downstream 
um, harms of over-testing, over-diagnosis that we have to worry about. So the multi-target stool DNA test has only been compared to FIT in one uh, large observational study. We don't have data on repeat intervals, how it performs year after year or every three years. Uh, so those data are still accumulating, which is why it's in a different category and it's not the, the first line recommended test in our guideline. And then is there also like a component of cost to these multi-sequence you know, DNA or I guess, can you talk about that? For sure. Now, again, for the guideline, you know, we went with the evidence for the best test. And then obviously cost does play a role. But the first thing we want to do is, you know, pick out the best tests for our patients. Um, the cost is an important consideration. The multi-target stool DNA test is about $600 whereas the fit test is about $20 roughly. So you can see, you know, the, the gradient there. Significant. However, yeah. you know, the multi-target stool DNA test, uh, so far the manufacturer recommends uh, repeating it every three years. We don't have great evidence, but if that was the case, then maybe it's more convenient. Maybe more people will do it that way. And it being more sensitive, it has a higher sensitivity for advanced adenomas still not great, but higher than fit. So if that's a selling point that convinces somebody to undergo that test, then, you know, then it's worthwhile having uh, as a, as a testing option. Yeah. One of the things that I actually um, had never heard of before reading this paper was the septin nine testing. Um, I know, I guess the recommendation was, I guess you guys actually came down against septin nine. Can you talk a little about what it is and why, you guys, I guess, sort of pump the brakes on it. Yeah. So we have a lot of enthusiasm for a blood-based test. And truly, personally, I think in five years, we'll have multiple blood-based testing options. And it's a great thing. Our patients are already used to getting their blood drawn for a variety of things, right? Mm -hmm. Cholesterol screen, um, LDL, um, hemoglobin A1C. Um, so they understand the concept of a blood test. Uh, if done properly, it can be coupled with other labs that they're having or even a home phlebotomy, uh, which, you know, was pretty much proliferated in the era of COVID. So I think it has great promise. However, the septin 9 um, has low sensitivity. And the first thing to think about a screening test is its sensitivity, right? Because we don't want false negatives. Uh, particularly for cancer. So its sensitivity for cancer is low enough that we didn't think that if you were going to spend the time and the energy to convince somebody to undergo screening, that should be one of the tests that you opt for. Hmm. And I know the, uh, the company is working on other iterations, and um, I'm, I'm very confident that a, uh, a much more sensitive and accurate test is in the works. And so we wanted to kind of keep that pressure on and say, hey, you know, we love the idea of a blood-based test, but we would like to see higher sensitivity for colon cancers. And then again, the same things, right? Some longer term data, what should the repeat interval be like? How does it perform in different populations? Is there cross-reactivity in individuals with inflammatory bowel disease that may mm -hmm. have other markers floating around in blood? So. Mm -hmm because of those unanswered questions. And again, uh, keeping feet to fire and holding 
holding um, companies accountable, we wanted to see more evidence. Excellent. Yeah, that's really good. Um, so I guess, you know, a, a few years ago, I had heard a lot about CT colonography. And I feel like we were moving towards this era where screening colonoscopies were going to disappear. Uh, we'd only be doing diagnostic or therapeutic colonoscopies. Um, and everyone would be getting CT colonography. Uh, but it seems like it really hasn't taken off the way that, um, I guess, I don't know, we had expected. Uh, is there a particular reason for that? Or, you know, I guess, what are the advantages, disadvantages of a, a CT colonography? Yeah, the CT colonography is such an interesting story. We could, uh, you know, spend a, a whole hour just on that. It is a very good test. And it has been really well studied in every which way compared to colonoscopy, compared to um, other tests, um, tandem testing uh, tested by itself. Um, and it performs pretty well for detecting colon cancers and maybe some, some larger neoplasia. Where it falls short is flat lesions. And as we started to recognize that polyps come in all shapes and sizes, truly when I trained, we used to look for the pedunculated and the, maybe the semi-sessile or sessile things. But now you know we understand that polyps can be completely flat or even excavated. So then the concern arose that the sensitivity of the CT colonography perhaps is not up to par where we would like it to be for those lesions. And then it's uh, sensitivity to detect lesions smaller than six millimeters is pretty low. Hmm. And this whole debate ensued. How important are six millimeter or smaller polyps in our clinical practice? Yeah. And you'll have many gastroenterologists say, that's important for my patient population. I'd be uncomfortable missing those or saying, you know, it was no polyp when there was a five millimeter polyp. So that also um, decreased enthusiasm. And perhaps the biggest reason is uh, a, a more um, a more practical reason is availability. CT colonography is not available everywhere. It uh, takes a lot of uh, radiologist time and needs, you know, specialized radiologist training, specialized centers, then there's also radiation involved. There's a prep involved. So when you put all those things together, just as a practical uh, test, it just didn't fare very well. Mm -hmm. Can't be done in the comfort of one's home. Yeah. Um, so then people said, well, then why not just do a colonoscopy? So I think <laughs> the main reason was truly it wasn't in the gastroenterologist domain. And we are kind of the drivers uh, of uh, colon cancer screening. So uh, unfortunate, you know, disconnection there. But it's a great test where it's available. Uh, it's highly recommended, but in the right hands. So I think knowing who's reading them, how good they are, and um, um, having a good system where perhaps individuals that have a positive CT colonography could get a colonoscopy the same day or the next day without having to take, ex you know, a whole another uh, gallon of prep would be yeah, very, very desirable. Yeah. So it's more programmatic Im implementation just kind of failed. Yeah. Hmm. Well, so I am, I'm pretty ready to run through the, the rapid fire scenarios. Uh, unless Jason, unless you have any other lingering questions or we didn't really expound on something in the paper. No, no. 
Okay. Go so, right ahead. Okay, we're ready. So let's roll. So I just have a couple different case scenarios, and um, I guess we can just work through them. I guess using the guidelines as a base. Some of them may be a little bit outside of the guidelines. I apologize for that, but hopefully we can just uh, we'll we'll just work through it. Um, okay. So case one. Okay, a forty-five-year-old male is presenting for his first colonoscopy. Uh, he reports nobody in his family has had colon cancer, but he does note several members with breast and uterine cancer. Uh, do you consider this kind of patient average risk? Um, and then if so, I guess, are there other questions that you would ask him in the endoscopy suite with limited amount of time to sort of further delineate his, um, his, his future? Yeah, absolutely. So uterine cancer should raise some flags. As uh, the audience knows, it's part of the, the Lynch uh, family or HNPCC uh, family of tumors. So the next questions are always which family members, again, you know, first degree, second degree or third degree, and what age were they diagnosed? So who had the uterine cancers and at what age were they diagnosed with the uterine cancers would be, you know, the two most important questions. So if it's, you know, two grandmothers and they had it in their 80s, not so worried. But say it's a sister and a mother and they were uh, 50 or younger, even one of them at the time of diagnosis. Okay, now that is leading us down the path of um, should I figure out if this person fits the Bethesda criteria, which says, you know, at least one family member with a, with a colon cancer or an HNPCC uh, younger than 50 um, and uh, or a first degree relative. So if that's the criteria, then I would absolutely uh, put this person in an increased risk category. Hmm. And there's also online uh, scoring modules. One is called PREM, which I really like. Mm -hmm. So one could kind of plug in other family history in it. It spits out a score. And based on that probability, we could then recommend uh, when to start screening and how often. In general, if it's two first-degree relatives, regardless of age, so say it's a mom and a sister uh, with, say, uterine cancer, uh, that qualifies the person as being increased risk. And there, the screening recommendations are to start 10 years younger. So at this time, that would be starting age 40. Right. So, and using a colonoscopy. So he's already 58. So he would definitely be ready for screening. Yeah. 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 Okay. Excellent. Okay. So next one. So a 67 year old male uh, with a history of two polyps that were sub centimeter uh, about four years ago presents for colonoscopy due to a positive fit test. Um, what is the role of a fit test after patients have undergone colonoscopy? Because I feel like a lot of times we get put in this position, people show up prepped because of a positive fit, but then you realize they've had a colonoscopy in the past. I don't know. How, how do you Consistent in a direct access center too, yeah. Yeah. So uh, no role. <laughs> and, <laughs> uh, there's residents or fellows that are looking for a QI project. Uh, you know, there are several <laughs> that have been done, but they still need to be done. How do we stop inappropriate fit? <laughs> yeah. mm -hmm. uh, that would be a great, you know, career-making uh, question. So essentially, fit has no role. If somebody had had a colonoscopy, 
then they truly should not undergo uh, a fit for the next 10 years if their colonoscopy was normal and if the colonoscopy had adenomas or other things then it should really be a colonoscopy at a set surveillance interval so fit just doesn't fit in there but as you said we see it all the time yeah. right <laughs> we did do a qi effort we took it out of the hands of uh, hospital and emergency rooms because mm -hmm. they were using fit on everything that's like uh -huh. every GI's dream. How did that go? Yeah. So we were actually pretty successful. Incredible. In fact, we got some complaints. The ER physicians are like, how can I not order a fit anymore? I love this. Uh, that's my design. <laughs> <laughs> that was intentional. Don't worry about their fit. Just just take care of their urgent problem. <laughs> right. Um, so, but it still happens. So if it does happen, um, and sometimes it's, you know, our, our fractured healthcare system, right? Mm -hmm. A patient shows up. We have their records, but the PCP they're seeing doesn't. And they're like, you know, I, I don't want to have to spend effort trying to get your records. It's easier for me to just give you another fit. And that's what we call over screening. Unfortunately, uh, a lot of that happens in our fractured healthcare system. Yeah. So, so they get like a fit doing the same and now thing. it's positive. Well, you're committed now to investigate it. Unless mm -hmm. the only caveat there is unless there was a colonoscopy within the past year, that was high quality and complete, and you're relatively assured that uh, you know that colonoscopy didn't miss anything major. Then you could call that fit a false positive, reassure the patient, and move on. However, outside of that scenario, uh, the fit unfortunately now needs to be investigated, hmm. and the only investigation is a colonoscopy, not another fit. I've seen that also, so they keep doing them till they turn <laughs> negative. <laughs> I've seen this. So they keep doing them till they're negative and they say, okay, now you're fine. Right. What's better than one fit? Two fits. More okay. Um, okay. So that's really helpful, actually. Um, so, okay. Another case. So case three, uh, a 55-year-old male uh, with no past medical history presents for a colonoscopy. Oh, his only, I guess, past medical history is constipation, severe constipation. This is his third colonoscopy in the last one and a half years um and basically during the endoscopy you're able to advance to the ascending colon but not the cecum due to solid stool how do you i guess approach um screening in the future for this patient i, I guess what would your next move be yeah first that's a lot of colonoscopies think of all the risk we put this person through mm -hmm. and also the burden on resources and also a pretty common scenario. You know, I work at a VA. Um, same was true for the Atlanta VA and definitely Grady. Uh, we see um, patients from nursing homes or spinal cord injury. Very difficult to prep patients with mental health uh, challenges. So this scenario is, is pretty common. So again, we haven't seen their full colon, so we can't give them a pass. So they still need investigation of at least their proximal colon. How do we do that? There's two options. One is to repeat the colonoscopy, but do something different. Uh, every place now has these extended prep indications. People have this uh, nurse navigator, you know, somebody that needs extra handholding. Some facilities even admit these patients, uh, you know, if they have no resources or if, if we understand the reason why they can't uh, prep. So is it they couldn't follow instructions or the standard prep didn't work? And they both lead you to different things. Um, 
is the solution more prep or is the solution uh, navigation and support? Um, and then um, if that's still not feasible or amenable and they say, I don't want to do another colonoscopy, which happens often, I'm never coming back. Then uh, sometimes I go to a CT colonography. It's a, it's a good option in that scenario because essentially I'm looking for anything worrisome like large cancers or you know larger polyps that a CT colonography should show us. And uh, there, again, there's a prep involved, but it's not as burdensome. It's lower volume, better tolerated. Uh, there's no sedation. So because we have CT colonography available to us, that's something that I definitely do offer the patients. At least they're not undergoing the risk of the sedation uh, or anesthesia in that scenario. And that would be an option. Now on the market, there's some exciting products coming. And again, you know, I have uh, no um, uh, conflicts of interest there, but I've seen some presentations of emerging technologies. One is called uh, PureView, which is essentially kind of a, um, um, a sleeve that goes over the colonoscope and has these four jets. So it kind of blasts. Uh, any amount of solid stool, wow. and then there's uh, two extra suction uh, channels, um, and it's supposed to be kind of an innovative rescue technology. It's it's not inexpensive, but you know for the right <laughs> patient where it's adding so much burden to the patient and the healthcare system, that might be one of the options. To think gotta about. get one of those. Yeah, that sounds pretty awesome. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, right? okay. People are thinking about this scenario. That's right. great. And, uh, yeah. Trying to come up with it. That's awesome. Okay, we're winding down on time. We've got a couple more. Okay, so you have in case four or five. So an 85-year-old female is prepped for colonoscopy. Okay, she has history of CKD, CHF, hyperlipidemia. Um, she was told to start aspirin, low-dose aspirin by our PCP, but... Um, is a little concerned about start adding a new medication to her regimen. Um, how do you counsel her about, I guess, the importance of aspirin uh, for chemo prevention for, for colorectal cancer? Great question. Aspirin for chemo prevention for colorectal cancer, there's been accumulating evidence. Surprisingly, it's come from large-scale cardiology trials, right? Because they really know how to do long-term studies and they have large cohorts of patients. The aspirin's given for cardiovascular or other prevention. However, they do track other things like cancer outcomes. And turns out that in the right person, uh, there is a role for chemo prevention for aspirin um, uh, for colorectal cancer. However, there's a lot of caveats around it. It needs to be somebody basically between 60 and 69 who has uh, a, a cardiovascular risk score of about 10% or higher and has no contraindications to aspirin, is willing to take aspirin for at least 10 years. Um, that's pretty much the only candidate for aspirin chemo prevention. Somebody younger than that, again, cancers are so rare that it's uh, truly not um, effective or cost-effective to put them on aspirin. And somebody that's older just doesn't have a long enough life expectancy to benefit from the chemo prevention um, value of aspirin because it takes a good 10 years to accumulate. So somebody that's 70 or older will unlikely to benefit. And in fact, the harms uh, accumulate much more in older populations, particularly over 80. 
So I would say there isn't a role for aspirin chemo prevention in this case, and don't take it for the GI benefit. If the cardiologist uh, think that she needs it for the hyperlipidemia or uh, cardiovascular disease, then it's fine. Although as we're re realizing most evidence there seems to be pointing that aspirin has again, limited indication than the widespread use that we saw say 10 or 20 years ago. Yeah. But I would ask them, but from the GI perspective, say there's no reason for you to be taking it. Excellent. There was a um, there was some Twitter banter about um, I guess the use of uh, aspirin as chemo prevention in patients who have Lynch syndrome, mm -hmm. and the the changing. Is there a different dose in those scenarios, or is there even good evidence for I guess mm -hmm. you know escalating dose in those scenarios? Yeah. So there's good evidence for Selendac and Coxins. Uh, COX-2 inhibitors. And uh, the dose is much higher. And there is a chemopreventive uh, benefit there because some okay. of the cancer subtypes that they likely develop are the ones that uh, truly aspirin does seem to slow down or interfere with. So, but not not truly the, the baby or the regular aspirin. Uh, for them, I would have a dedicated discussion with them uh, about again, their GI bleeding risk and thinking about a COX-2 inhibitor or Selendac or something along those lines. Excellent. Excellent. Well, we're kind of wrapping up here. I think we're, we're kind of reaching our, our, our time here. So um, I guess closing questions, I'm, I'm kind of interested. Were there, um, were there things that didn't make the guidelines that you really wanted to include or, you know, what, what are we not seeing here that, that you guys were kind of fighting to put into them? Right. So some of the things that I really wanted to include, which actually did make it, but they are kind of towards the end of the guidelines. So everybody fatigues out and they didn't make it in the spotlight, I should say, was how to think about organized screening. And yeah. I think it's very important uh, for us to not be tunnel visioned and wait for patients to show up in our practice but to think about globally, who is my patient population and what am I doing to get them screened? And start to develop these methods. They are not only effective, but they're cost effective, right? So say having a program like Kaiser does or the VA is starting to think about and other healthcare systems truly are approaching that where we say, okay, this is my patient population, right? That I serve and these are the screening rates. How do I bring somebody to screening and making it a more population health level thing? So instead of every PCP trying to struggle with their own panel, let's have one person and it doesn't even need to be uh, a physician level. It could be a well-trained nurse, navigator, or even um, uh, just a project manager and let them run with it. Come up with an organized program Figure out how you're going to reach these patients. Are you going to send them letters, texts, phone calls? What do they respond to? Uh, are there language barriers? Are there financial barriers? How can you help them navigate all those barriers and bring them to screening and give them an option? Um, it, so this programmatic screening approach is much more beneficial. It gets more people screened and truly the right people screened because we don't want to just you know screen the worried well, the people that line up and they truly have lower risk factor profiles. Uh, we truly want to reach out to the people that aren't coming to screening. And this is particularly important because of two things. One, the screening age being lowered. 
many 45 year old men don't really even see a doctor because they're perfectly healthy and yeah. the women maybe if they um had a visit with a obgyn but not really so how are we going to bring these people in how are we going to find them and bring them in they're not even plugged into the healthcare system you can't have so called opportunistic screening without that Absolutely. opportunity and then the second thing is the covid pandemic you can't bring everybody to an endoscopy unit it's just not feasible and it's not safe so thinking outside the box for non invasive colon cancer screening tests and then the tests that are positive having a system to navigate those to the colonoscopy because they need it the most well this has been an excellent conversation on colorectal cancer screening um i i think we're probably going to wrap it up there i just want to say one for our listeners who have not read these guidelines please 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 do because we can't cover everything you know in like the the 46 minutes that we've been talking and i just want to say uh dr shukat thank you so much for coming on to the inaugural episode of the emroid digest podcast we really appreciate your time yeah i'm i'm very appreciative and honored to be the inaugural uh person and if there's questions please shoot them to us on twitter or on email uh we're we're available absolutely thank so you so kind much. of you to be here thank you again for your time yeah thank you so much for having me thank you so much and this is us signing off see you guys So that was a really great interview. Um, there was, I feel like there was really no better way to start off this series than one, talking about colorectal cancer screening and with a prior Emory GI fellow. Uh, it's just super awesome. Okay, that that is, that's all this. Actually, there's a little bit more to the show. Uh, Dr. Brown, can you finish us off with the rest of the disclaimer? Yes, hang on to your hats, y'all. Medicine is a lifelong learning process, and this podcast is part of that process for us. While every effort is taken to ensure the accuracy of the material presented, we realize that medicine is constantly changing, not to mention that art comes along with science. In a recorded conversation like this, we may make a mistake or get something wrong. We welcome comments, suggestions, or corrections. This material is presented for informational purposes only. This podcast is not intended to be, nor should it be, understood or construed to be professional advice. By listening to this podcast, you agree not to use this podcast as medical or health advice to treat yourself or others, whether you're a credential medical provider or otherwise. Listening to this podcast does not constitute medical advice, nor is it a gender or physician patient relationship. This podcast should not be considered a replacement for the services of a licensed trained physician or healthcare professional. Consult your physician for any medical issues you may be having. No author guess this podcast should be liable or responsible for any errors or omissions on this podcast or for any injury you may suffer as a result. Fail to see continental or health advice in a professional similar situation. Furthermore, this podcast is not to be used in any legal capacity whatsoever, including unlimited staffing and post-standard care in legal sense or as a source of testimony. The views and opinions of the experts in this podcast are those of the Basically, this podcast is solely educational and don't sue us. All right, see you next time, guys.